0: shallow and the conversations are deep each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns the fringes of science and culture the borderlands between truth and possibility if you happen to be in south florida you might be listening to this show live at 6 p.m on saturdays on keys talk 96.9 or 1025 fm if so please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com I received some messages after last week's show. Most of them, though, were not about the contents of the show itself. And a reminder, you can send me an email to me at mattasher.com anytime you'd like. As I say, these emails were not about the contents of the show, which was a solo show, and this will be too today. What? People, what particularly observant listeners noticed, was what I didn't talk about last week during the show. One of those emails was actually fairly pointed about what I didn't mention. And in retrospect, fair enough, though, there was a reason which had become apparent today with this show, which will touch very heavily on that thing I didn't talk about last Saturday, which happened to be September 11th. The show today is going to be about that, about September 11th, 2001. The 20th anniversary, for those who don't know, was last week, last Saturday. I'm going to be talking about it today. I'll give my own where was I, what was I doing. I think everybody above a certain age has a story like that. And maybe you'll find mine interesting. It's a little bit different than the usual where was I on that day story. And from there, we're going to end up talking about the topic you kind of have to talk about if you're talking about 9-11, and that is terrorism and our response to it. Those are tricky, complex subjects. They're hard, and they're hard to do right. They're hard to talk about in a way that doesn't devolve in one way or another either into a level of heated rage that makes it hard to think clearly or into a level of cool analysis about what really happened that that doesn't capture the, the horror of that day. And I suppose if we're talking about this, we might as well begin with that, the horror of that day. I imagine that Over the last week and all of the remembrances, there was lots of talk that you heard about that. It's certainly not something that one could overstate, just the the sheer awfulness of what happened. But I'm not going to start with that. I'm going to start with where I was when I heard it and my own connection to the event Let's just start with that. Like most Americans, I have neither a direct connection to the event. I don't know anyone who died, but I do have a one-hop connection, actually a couple of my relatives, my cousins who were living and working in Manhattan at the time that it happened. And of course, I was very worried about them and as everyone did had a hard time getting through and finding out what had happened, but I did, through their family, fairly quickly find out that they were okay. Uh, they, of course, as people who worked down there knew and lived in New York, knew people who did die. So, like many Americans, I, yeah, I, I wasn't there in Manhattan, but I, I do, I'm connected in that one-hop way uh, from the tragedy itself. Though I was not in the United States when it happened, I was in South America, specifically in Bolivia. I've spoken a little bit on this show about my own time there. You can go back in the archives at mattasher.com and look for that episode if you'd like. That was the one titled Wistu Vida, which translates roughly to Crooked Life. I believe it was episode number 39. So I was there in South America when this happened in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and I remember watching the events unfold on a TV in the corner of a tienda, which is a a little corner store. This one must have sold food. I remember vaguely drinking and munching on something throughout the morning as I sat and watched the television. I would have had to to sit there I would have felt inappropriate even under the circumstances to be monopolizing their store and not buying anything probably I was drinking a a coke and even though this is a show about 911 I'm going to go into some of the details because I think for all of us the event was not just an important event in our in our lives but it was also a moment and it was a moment that we can look back on and view what was our life like at that moment what was the slice of life that got in a sense encased in amber in our memories because of the events of that day so I was in this corner store and I was munching probably on potato chips and maybe on sultanas, which are a little bit like empanadas they're these meat-filled pockets and Often there would be an egg in them, a a quail egg, and if you've never had quail eggs, they are these lovely, tasty, tiny little eggs, and they go very well when they're in some other dish combined with meat or sauces. And then I was probably drinking on a Coke, and the Coke down there is made with sugar, not corn syrup, so it has a nicer taste. You're also up in altitude there, maybe 7,000 feet up. So the fizz is extra fizzy. So the cokes between the sugar and the extra fizz taste particularly delightful. But I don't remember my exact meal that day. I do remember being there in the corner store munching on something and drinking on something and watching the TV. I didn't catch the first uh, crash live. I did catch the second one live. And I remember that feeling before it happened of what what is really going on here. And then after the second one happened, like so many others, it was indisputable what had happened. And the only thing you could do was just sit in awe and amazement and horror as the videos came in and it looked like you were watching a movie. And The TVs played the same scenes over and over, the crash of the plane into the buildings and the awful scenes of the people who dove out to avoid burning up in the flames. Just really absolute horror. I spoke with my wife that morning. She was back in the States at the time. We had split up, I think, about a month earlier, temporarily, while... I went back to Bolivia to try and turn the business that I had started while I was down there into something that was genuinely viable. I did not succeed at that. She was back in the U.S. doing work as a librarian. We had agreed when we arrived to stay in Bolivia for two years to give it a fair shake. And then after two years, she was definitively done. And I still did want to make that business work. So I was there on my own uh, for a few months, including during when the terrorist attacks happened. But we, of course, talked about it that uh, that very day, that very morning, as I recall. And we talked about it many times in the months that followed before I came back to the United States. It was clear very quickly that there was going to be a reaction from the U.S. government. There had to be a reaction that was baked in, of course. The particulars of the reaction were not baked in. And before I get into that, let's just take a a step back here, if we can, and talk about terrorism generally. And let's talk about what it means to fight a war on terror. Of course, you can't fight a war on a tactic. I'm certainly not the first person to point this out in the intervening years. You can only fight a war against actual people, not against a way of waging war. Sometimes you can try to eliminate a particular weapon from the battlefield, but getting rid of a tactic, especially a tactic that is essentially a psychological warfare tactic that is absolutely impossible. So the war on terror is not a war on terrorism per se, but it is a war on terrorists, or specifically on the groups of people who we have labeled terrorists. Some of them were very certainly engaged in acts of terrorism, and we went out and we cleared out, I think, pretty clearly early on some of the strongholds of the people who were responsible, though at the same time, there's an argument to be made that there were Saudi connections that we did not fully pursue in terms of going after their culpability and what had happened. But we did launch an attack against specific groups of people, a specific nation that we believed was harboring the terrorists and responsible for being a stronghold for these kind of terrorist attacks, specifically the one on 9-11. But of course, this gets very tricky very quickly when you're going after people who are not just the specific ones engaged in that terrorism, but also the people who are harboring those terrorists or in a nation that harbors those terrorists or potential terrorists there is there are a lot of people who are linked to any terrorist attack in one way or another i talked about the fact that i was pro- i am probably among the median americans in that at the time i had a a one hop connection to the event i think it's safe to say that probably the same thing applies if someone in a country is a a terrorist or in a groups of terrorists, that there is a one-hop connection between them and a large fraction of that community where you draw the line between people who are actually terrorists versus potential terrorists or terrorist adjacent. That is, of course, a very tricky problem to suss out and figure out, and one can get in a lot of trouble going out and killing people who aren't terrorists this is one of the theories of why 9-11 happened in the first place was that we had done so many killings of people in the Mideast that it was inevitable that there would be blowback now blowback is a very real thing though I'm not qualified to judge whether the specific attack on 9-11 was or wasn't a an instance of blowback but i do know this i do know living there outside of the us that by and large there was a huge outpouring of sympathy for america in that particular moment and that did extend down there to south america but then there was also a subset of the people who in some sense were not so upset about what had happened And among those people who were not so upset about what had happened, there was a general feeling that the U.S. had in some ways gotten what it deserved for all of its meddling in the Middle East, including the many dead bodies that had been left in its wake, among other places in Afghanistan, for the kind of Cold War that it had fought against uh, the Russians with the Mujahideen, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. That is history that predates me a little bit, and for the record, I was 28 when those attacks happened, so somewhere in between a young adult and a full-on adult. I certainly by that time had taken on some of the responsibilities of adulthood as I was slogging away down there trying to make it go of it as a business, and For the record, I was doing web design down there. I had a small web design firm, and I was fully integrated into Bolivian society at that moment, as much as one could be as a foreigner who'd been there a little over two years at that moment. I had a weekly column in the newspaper writing about technology and also was helping out with a a weekly weekend supplement in the main paper there that was something like the New York Times magazine uh so i was i was very much a, a part of the world down there and as a brief aside one of the things that actually upset me about the foreigners down there was that so many of them weren't actually part of the society down there they had come there either as missionaries that was a very big thing or as part of an NGO, so they were there to fix what was wrong with Bolivian society, or they came there as English teachers, so to make sure that the Bolivians knew the world's dominant language, which put me in an awkward position because people assumed that as a gringo, as a as a white guy, as a white couple, that that's what we were there to do, that we were there to, in some way, change the Bolivians. We were not. We were there to live in another place, experience life from a different vantage point, and to hopefully, from my perspective, at least make a little bit of money. Uh, My assumption was that the internet would blow up there in the same way that it was blowing up everywhere else in the world, and that because they were catching up with where things were in the United States, it would be a great moment to be in that business. There were some factors I did not count on that made it not such a good business, but that was the theory anyway. And we were doing our best to live more or less like the locals did. And when I was there on my own, I was certainly isolated from what was happening in the U.S. to a large extent. I remember before I came back to the U.S., and my my ex my wife at the time told me that things had changed in the U.S. that the after 9/11 things were different and I that information went into my head but it wasn't something that I fully understood so when I packed up my bags and I had an American flag that I had stuck on to my luggage, a little patch that I had sewn on to my luggage to go back to the U.S. to mark that moment when I was headed back to my home country, I, I really, I had no idea what I was going to expect in terms of the changes from this. I really hadn't, as I say, fully understood what my, my ex meant when she said that things had changed. In America, but I found out, and I found out pretty quickly, starting right away with the airport experience. It was not a direct flight from uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia, to where we were in Oregon. All of the routings into the United States went through Miami, and everything had changed. The airport experience was very much different from what it was before. The level of security and, I should say, of security theater was through the roof at that point. And I think it still is to a large extent, both the actual security measures and the measures that almost certainly are not doing anything useful right now. I sense that right away. And this is... Let's talk a moment more about specifically about the airport things because they were one of the things that changed in the most dramatic way. One of the things I remember growing up was that we we lived in a small city, maybe a hundred thousand people, and one of the things that people liked to do there for entertainment and for a night out was go to the airport and have food or a drink. It was one of the restaurants that was open the latest because it had to accommodate the travelers. And I'd imagine I was young at that time, but I would imagine it was one of the places you could go to have a drink. And thinking this over now, in hindsight, as an adult, perhaps it was one of the places that single women could go and have a drink and perhaps meet a pilot or a business traveler or someone else for a fun evening or perhaps more after that. But it was completely open. You could park and walk right in. In fact, you could go right up to the gate if you wanted to meet people. I think younger people might not realize this, but there was a time when you could just park your car wherever and they weren't immediately blaring a message at you that only drop-off and pick-up was acceptable and that if your car was there near the terminal for more than 10 seconds, someone would come rap on your window and ask you to move because you might be blowing them up. And then, of course, all those concrete barriers that were put up at various locations, those were all new after 9 So as soon as I got back, I noticed that in the airports, and then I noticed it more broadly that something about U.S. society had changed. A certain openness had died. When we come back from the break, I'm going to talk more about that idea of openness as a society and what is lost, and then I'm going to get into terrorism and what its aims are and we're gonna try to switch on the analytical filter a little bit and try to understand terrorism. Keys Talk FM 102.5 and 96.9. I am talking about 9/11. This is the one week anniversary of the 20 year anniversary of that event. I did not talk about it directly on that anniversary date. I made a conscious effort not to, though. I should say, if you go on the website and you look at the picture that represents last week's show, you'll see a little bit of an homage to that, a kind of Easter egg for people. But some of you did notice that I didn't talk about it and were wondering why, and also one of you was a little bit upset that I didn't mention it. So I'm mentioning it now, and then some, in effect, were doing the whole show to talk about that event and more broadly about terrorism and its impact on a society and that may be the perfect place to pick back up because I had come back to the U.S. and I had noticed that everything had changed and not just in terms of there being now American flags everywhere and people were on edge still even the several months after 9-11 when I came back I could tell that there was almost a sense of doom or a cloud that hung over the entire nation people were were scared were scared that this would happen again they were on edge about any little event every time there was something that happened that seemed unusual uh whether it was a, a some small plane crash or some mass shooting that was not necessarily even a huge mass shooting, though, of course, any kind of mass shooting is going to be horrible, but that no matter what size, there was immediately that question, was this an act of terrorism? And I think that gets us to the heart of what terrorism is and what it tries to do. The goal is not to take out the US military force that was something that would be way beyond the scope and power of al-Qaeda or really any similar organization. The goal of terrorism was to terrorize, and it succeeded at that. It succeeded in causing the United States to reorganize its society. It led to A couple of wars in the Mideast, at least a couple of wars, and then depending on how you want to slice it, several others where we drone bombed countries or had other excursions, let's just say in other Middle Eastern countries, that cost the U.S. a couple thousand soldiers, maybe 3,000 soldiers' lives, a, a larger number of casualties, and a a huge amount of money. And here's where we're going to get analytical, and this may seem like we're being cold, but that money, that matters. And in fact, let's just try to examine that in a way that makes it understandable in terms of human life, because money is not just a, a, a series of zeros and ones that exist in a computer money is a stand-in it's a stand-in for the actual output of individual people doing things creating things providing goods and services and if you add up the bill for all of those all of those wars and various things that we've done in the Middle East since 9-11 you get to a bill that is maybe about three trillion and The numbers I'm going to throw out here are certainly not going to be exact. These are going to be back-of-the-envelope calculations just so that you get a feel for how huge these things are, but they're not exact, nor could they be exact. So let's just take for the moment that number, $3 trillion. It's just a number, right? It's just a stat. It pales in comparison to those 3,000 or so people who have died. Except there's another way to look at that amount of money. The average American earns something like 50K a year. We're talking about the median American here. And let's just say that they have a working life that lasts about 30 years at that level. Some people move in and out. Some people retire early. Some people get married and uh, have kids and drop out of the workforce. So let's just take as a rough estimate that the average person in America has a lifetime expected earnings of about $1.5 million over the, those 30 years. So what does that mean? Well, what that means, if you compare that to the $3 trillion, is that we spent two million working lives on those Middle Eastern wars, on the wars on terror, which are, of course, the wars on people who we call terrorists. That is not an insubstantial amount of human life to throw at a problem. Whatever you want to say about whether that was ultimately useful or not It is, of course, very hard to do the counterfactual and say if we hadn't done those wars, whether there would have been uh, another catastrophic, maybe even a more catastrophic attack here at home in the US. That is certainly plausible. It's also plausible that in the end, all of our wars in the Middle East have only served to destabilize the region and make ourselves in the long run less safe. But either way, you need to recognize, we need to recognize, that two million full working lives worth of resources going into this, that's a lot. Money matters. Money matters a lot. To put it bluntly, more economically powerful nations tend to destroy lesser nations, economic speaking, when they get into a conflict. There are certainly cases where a country that is a little bit more powerful economically than another one will struggle against that one and ultimately lose. And there are certainly cases where a much, much more powerful nation is fought off by a less powerful economically speaking nation. That was just the case in Afghanistan. But In terms of the broad arc of history, the economically dominant power is almost always the militarily dominant power. Think back, for example, to the Civil War. At the beginning of it, the South had a number of victories based on having perhaps better generals and better strategy. They were up in the beginning, but in the long term, it was a South that had one-tenth the economic output of the North, and in the long run, the die were cast, so to speak, and there was nothing that could be done to prevent the North from winning. That is the history of the world. If there is a huge economic disparity and one of the two combatants is willing to just keep driving forward, they will eventually drive forward the whole way through. Even in Afghanistan, Even though we ultimately lost, we were winning, we were in control, it was just that we were in control in a precarious way that had gone on for 20 years. The point here is simply that economic power is military power, and those two million lifetimes worth of energy and resources that were poured into the war on terror, they could have been used for any number of other things. They could have been fed back into economic growth of the nation. They could have gone into infrastructure, goods, services, increasing trade, coming up with more startups. You don't know. This is the other counterfactual. How much more economically prosperous would we be if that hadn't happened and certainly one of the things that we notice when we look at the economic history of the United States over the last 20 years and going back a little bit before that still is that the the middle and lower classes have had a hard time of it relative to others. They're not exactly killing it. Now, you can't just point to all of those resources that went into the wars and say, oh, that's the reason why, but taking so many resources and diverting them into this thing that has to have an effect there's no way for it not to have an effect and that's going to be a big effect so again to be as clear as possible not to diminish from the horror of the lives lost but you also have to look at what was the cost of this and then there's the other cost that we need to talk about, which is the cost in terms of how we organize society and the cost of being a less open society. Being more fearful, that has negative implications in general. If you've ever gone from a small town where you never had to worry about locking your car or your house to a bigger city where everyone had to be sure to lock everything all the time, you know that that takes a psychological toll on you to be always on guard and making sure that you've locked your doors and then just walking down the streets or making sure you're not in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. That has an impact on your life. It's really lovely, if you haven't had this experience, to be in a cafe in a very high-trust society or subset of the United States or some other country, and just go up and go to the bathroom or do whatever else you want and just understand that no one's going to take your laptop. That's, that's another word for freedom. I'm going to just say that directly. I think that that's true. The freedom to not worry about theft or a physical attack or terrorism, that is freedom. And That was taken away from us, though let's be a little bit more precise about what we mean, what I mean, when I say that that was taken away from us on 9-11. People often talk about how our collective naivete, how our bubble was burst on that day. I see it a little bit differently. I look at it as we did this to ourselves, certainly, of course, to be as clear as possible, not the attack itself but our reaction to it we need to own that and we need to own the fact that our reaction to it i think i don't think it's going too far to say that our reaction to that was highly extreme we were highly reactive to it and relative to the number of people who died and again not to diminish the pain of those Uh, who lost someone on that day. Every day in America, we lose thousands of people. Life happens, and life means death happens. That is the cold, hard reality of our life. We've certainly seen it even more in this age now with the pandemic. People die. This is the point where we need to just be full-on cold about this and understand what we've done to ourselves versus what was done to us Any given month here in the United States of America, more people die of an opioid overdose than died on 9-11, more probably by about a factor of two every single month. 9-11 was a terrible horror, but we have internal horrors happening all the time. That one I mention in particular because I have a very personal connection to it. Lots of bad things are happening here all the time and lots of people are dying. And those are painful deaths and they affect the people around them. But we don't start wars over that. It's understood that in the wake of nine eleven, we were going to have to do something. We were going to have to seek out those people who were responsible and we were going to have to kill them. There was no doubt about that. But our reaction, both militarily and also in terms of the psychological impact and the cultural impact that it had and the ways in which we essentially militarized our entire society and put it on the defensive, this was the part that I hadn't expected when I came back. This was the part that Anne was warning me about that I didn't fully understand. The extent to which Americans seem to have again, relative to the death levels of many, many other things in our society, really lost our minds. And to be as fair as possible in trying to understand this, I think we all at the personal level have things that make us see red. For me, it is tailgating. If someone is right up on the rear of my car, I, I get extremely upset. And it's actually not that long ago that someone was so close behind me. I was going maybe 55 miles per hour and they they couldn't have been more than four or five feet behind me, just an astoundingly close distance when going that fast. And so I slowed down and This, of course, made them more upset, but from my perspective, it was the only thing that I could do to be safe. There wasn't an easy way to just pull out of the way at that particular moment. So I just, I lifted my foot off the gas pedal and I slowed down till I was going well below the speed limit instead of driving over it by more or less the appropriate amount for that particular stretch of the road. And this this did enrage the person even more. They got right up behind me and then eventually swung out and and passed me honking their horn. And I'm going to have to tell you how I reacted when we get back. You are listening to The Matt Asher Show on Keystalk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show, where we left off. I was being tailgated by a particularly aggressive and dangerous driver who had just swung out around me and zoomed off. And I must admit, as soon as he did, I not only honked back at him, and he honked as he went around me very loudly and yelled at something at me, but i actually began taking off after him for a moment i accelerated towards him now a moment or two later i gained my composure and slowed down and let him zoom off he zoomed right off in front uh behind the car that was the next one in line and was dangerously close to that one but there was that moment there as he went around me and sped off that all I could think about was I need to hunt this person down and I need to kill them. That is not a pleasant thing to admit, but it, it it is the reality. I was I was triggered. I was put into fight or flight mode and often in that mode I choose fight. And that's what I was beginning to choose until I came to my senses and backed off. That is that is not a good moment to make decisions right after something like that happens. And I did, as I say, recognize that and, and calm down. But it seemed like the country that I had come back to was still seeing red. They were still in that moment of heightened rage and heightened paranoia, and they weren't coming down from it. They had been changed not just In the moment, and not just in the weeks that followed, which was fully understandable, but they had changed in some kind of a long term way, which brings us back to terrorism as a tactic. A lot of the times, we need to recognize, and this may be a hard pill to swallow, but a lot of the times, what we need to recognize about Terrorism is the following. First of all, terrorism is an attack in asymmetric warfare. It's an attack when you have a contingent that is way, way less powerful than the other. They're not people who can take on the other nation directly militarily. And it's also a tactic that works when it taps into a certain weakness of the more powerful Power. What what do I mean by that? I mentioned the number of deaths on 9-11 and how it compared to, for example, the number of people who die of opioid overdoses every year, even every month. That was not to diminish the pain that we suffered on 9-11 or the loss of the people who lost someone on that date, but merely to put it in perspective and to understand that while this was a blow for sure, it was certainly not destined to be a blow that would cause us to restructure our entire society around trying to prevent another attack of exactly the same kind. That was our decision. Terrorism works not by defeating the opponent militarily, that would be absolutely impossible it was even impossible for the Taliban in Afghanistan they didn't defeat us militarily they wore us down and eventually we decided that this was an unwinnable conflict in reality it was an unwinnable conflict if we were unwilling to to really engage in what would have been absolutely horrific practices. And we decided that we didn't want to engage in that. And so we fought a a battle of nation building. And nation building is notoriously difficult, especially when you've decided that you are not going to colonize the other country, when you're going to fight it, but not try to take it over culturally. And that's what we seem to be doing in Afghanistan, fighting it, but not taking it over. At any rate, terrorism works and is effective when it causes your enemy to, in essence, rot from within. And I don't know any other way to put it other than to say that since 9-11, we have been a highly reactive society and a society where the autoimmune response to certain dangers and threats has been extremely high. Certainly, and this is something that if you listen to my show for any length of time, you'll note that I talk about quite often, the response to COVID was, let's just say, an own goal so profoundly destructive that I have a hard time putting in words how awful it was. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about terrorism and the 9-11 attacks. And One more time, just to be as clear as possible, this is also a time not to forget and to honor, and one of the reasons that I started this show, sharing my own reason for sharing my story of where I was when that happened and what I saw that day, was to get at how we memorialize events like that. We remember our own situation at that time, and that memory of our slice of life at that moment is interwoven with the event we will never forget because it is now a part of our own lives, that particular moment. So we're not doing anything about diminishing that moment or that pain right now. What we're doing instead in this episode, what I'm trying to do is to take a look also at the complicated nature of of an open-ended war. And at the very least, it needs to be recognized that the war on terror, the war on terrorism is open-ended. It never is going to be wrapped up. There's never a moment at which this tactic becomes not a tactic that's going to be used against us. And in some ways, what we showed in the wake of that attack was just how reactive we were. What we showed was that we were not going to be a society that buried and mourned and killed the attackers and went on. We were going to be a society that dramatically altered itself in the wake of an event like this. And that is, I think this is a not a correct cliché, but... There is something in saying that, to some extent, the terrorists won. They succeeded not just because they pulled off uh, two of the planes, pulled off their destinations in a way that was spectacularly horrific, but also because they succeeded in carrying out that secondary mission of of terrifying us and of getting us to rearrange our society in a way that I believe has made it much less free. And our level of economic prosperity, you say what you will about the effects of those two million lives that were destined to creating resources their entire lives that went into the war on terror. This is the math of having a $3 trillion expense on something— then that that can only have a negative effect to be extracting that much time and energy, wealth, which is, of course, just a proxy for that time and energy and output. To take that out of a nation, that has an impact. It does not make us stronger. And our reaction very quickly also became polarized and fractured. It went from a kind of unity of purpose to something that was much darker. And maybe at some point I'll talk a little bit more about that and about the kind of divide that in some ways began not long after 9-11. But just now there's one other topic that I want to get to, that I need to get to, and it's not a pretty topic. I'm recording this a few weeks after the Biden administration ordered a drone strike in Afghanistan on a group of people there. And as soon as they were killed, the administration claimed that these were terrorists. They were members of ISIS-K. It turns out, though, that they were actually aid workers doing things related to the U.S. government effort in Afghanistan. In other words, we killed some of our own, some Afghanis helping, not hurting us. And when asked about this, the administration gave an answer that made it clear that they had done this in, at the very least, a kind of haste or reckless disregard for the true nature of who they were targeting. This came in the context of a very failed, disastrous pullout from Afghanistan in terms of bringing soldiers home before we brought all of the civilians home and losing control of the airport and, of course, the leaving behind of billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons for the Taliban. Just an absolute disaster for which it should be noted no one was fired. But in this context, the administration wanted a win. They thought they could get one by killing these people. They were either reckless or just didn't care at all about who they were droning and saw it only as a PR opportunity. And as a result, these people are dead. And they're not dead as collateral damage. It's worth pointing out. This is direct damage, a targeted attack on what turned out to be civilians. And we have to go there in this. This is a lot like a terrorist blowing up a target and not really caring about how many are military and how many are civilians, the point being not to score a military victory, the point being to score a PR victory, just as the towers toppling was a huge victory for Al-Qaeda. It looked like a win to them. What we did in order to have something that looked like a win, in fact, looks an awful lot like state-sponsored terrorism, the indiscriminate killing of citizens or whoever happens to be in and around this particular target for the sole purposes of holding something up and saying, we're killing these people. That's not a pretty place to be as a nation. The classic warning from Nietzsche was battle ye not with monsters lest ye become a monster. In this war on terror, we need to be ever aware that we are not becoming them.